Anybody, um, there are some class handouts up here. Anybody need these that doesn't, that, that would like some? Um, I thought it was three pages. There's only two here. Is it? Oh, it's double-sided. So whoever needs these, uh, I'm sure Robert can get them to you. And... Um, We're going to be um, we're going to be emailing the church every week those uh, so that if you'd like to if you'd like to follow along it's totally optional for you if you want to do that let me pray for us and then we'll get started okay we got a lot to cover today let's pray Father thank you for uh, just this glorious day thank you for your grace uh, Lord thank you for bringing us all here thank you that um, Sunday school is Uh, so full, and we just pray that you would fill our hearts now. Give us the wisdom that we need to to understand your word, Father, to to understand, uh, Lord, how you've revealed yourself uh, in the progress of redemption, how it is that you have uh, revealed yourself through the administration of covenants and the economy of covenants, which we should really we really understand uh, the gravity of what is revealed in Scripture regarding these covenants, our hearts should be really uh, blessed and we should really um, uh, increase in our joy and our worship. Bless our time, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I did bring some show and tell today uh, before we get started. Uh, This is going to be definitely a very introductory uh, session for us today, but uh, I just wanted to show you what's going on in terms of covenant theology today, okay? And I have some books here that I want to uh, just share with you. We're going to get to the class, don't worry. Okay, so um, one of the challenges you're going to have if you want to study covenant theology is you're going to ask yourself, where do I even start? Uh, You can go on to Amazon or you can go on to a good Christian theological bookstore, maybe like Westminster's bookstore or Uh, CBD or something like that, or Reformation Heritage books or something, and you're going to find all sorts of stuff that's written on covenant theology. Um, Needless to say, there is a divergence of covenant theology, and I would say covenant theology is split up into two main camps, and that is either Presbyterian or Baptistic covenant theology, and so definitely we are Baptists, and therefore we do not follow our Presbyterian brethren in their conclusions of covenant theology. So when you read Covenant theology, just be aware that uh, you may be reading an extremely good book like O. Palmer Robertson, who I recommend very highly. Uh, this, is, this was actually my introduction to covenant theology, was O. Palmer Robertson. And, uh, but you, there is so much to gain and to benefit from uh, the theology of o, of o. Palmer Robertson, even though you know uh, he's an infant Baptist Presbyterian. Uh, there is still so much good to learn from from our Presbyterian brethren on this issue. Uh, we both agree in a covenant of redemption and a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. We both agree uh, that God works through covenants. We both agree that the new covenant is the climax of God's covenantal dealings with man, those kinds of things. And so there's a lot, a lot of agreement, and there's a lot of insight that you're going to learn from something like that. Also, um, if you are... 
coming from maybe a more Reformed Baptist background, uh, you can pick up a copy by um, Covenant Theology by Greg Nichols. Okay, Greg Nichols. Also, this is going to be on the on the uh, tape or the um, the recording. I still say tape. I, f- I always forget. But uh, there's you know it's going to be on the recording, and therefore there's plenty of room right up front, Kevin, if you want to come up. Kevin Sauberger, everybody, and Kristen Sauberger, good good friends of ours. And um, so, uh, Greg Nichols, this is another very important one. This is extremely systematic, very detailed covenant theology. Um, let's see here. Also, this little book right here <clears throat> is probably where I would say that I would find the most personal agreement with covenant theology, and it's a little book by Pascal Denault. Pascal Denault is a Reformed Baptist theologian, a really young guy too, uh, but 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 very very um, very important work that he's done here. One of the things that he's done is he's shown that covenant theology is not just a Presbyterian idea that uh, you know the the, the Baptists kind of hijacked later, right? But actually, all the way back to the 17th century, so you're thinking 1600s, you have uh, Reformed Baptistic theologians like Nehemiah Cox and others that were 100% on board uh, with the Westminster Confession, let's say, or the Westminster Standards that taught covenant theology. But they said, but, you know, something's wrong because uh, baptizing infants is not consistent with Scripture. So something went wrong in Presbyterian covenant theology. Well, Pascal Denault and others have pointed out exactly where they've gone wrong. Uh, Also, this other book here by Jeffrey Johnson, this is this is a good book, but he wrote another book called The Fatal Flaw. And The Fatal Flaw is kind of an expose on uh, precisely where Presbyterians go wrong on, on baptizing infants. Okay, um, We won't really deal too much with that um, uh, today or even in future sessions, but we will, we will, we will handle that. But uh, needless to say, you know, the reason we don't baptize infants is very simple. It's because baptism actually reflects union with Christ. It is not a promise of union with Christ. Does that make sense? So we don't baptize people in hopes that they will attain to union with Christ. We actually baptize people, or we don't baptize people, you know, in the idea that they're in a covenant relationship with God. So we believe very staunchly that the new covenant church, uh, that baptism, the sign of the covenant, should be given only to those who have actually come into union with Christ. So... Um, so we'll talk about stuff like that, okay? So there's all kinds of, this little book, too, is good, Sacred Bond. It's just kind of a short, see these little tiny books? Like, I'm looking for something simple, <laughs> right? Because I usually read, read a lot of big books. But I've been picking up little, small, little volumes like this to kind of get a 10,000-foot view of what are, the, what are they saying, right? What is covenant theology as a whole? So hopefully we can get into some of that. Okay, so let me... On your handout, we have pointed out some very basic things here, okay, about covenant theology. Um, how many of you have read a book on covenant theology? Raise your hands. Okay, so a few of you. A lot of you have not, right, read a book on covenant theology. So for those of you that are already kind of ahead of the grade, so to speak, if you have already read covenant theology, you understand some covenant theology, a lot of what I'm going to say today is not going to be, you know, anything new, um, but I think it's foundational, uh, so first of all, in your, in your notes there, you know, I point out that covenant theology is not new. That's important because, you know, whenever you're studying theological systems, uh, what is a theological system? What's another system of theology? Anybody know? 
Yes, sir. Dispensationalism is another. Any other system of, of theology that you can think of? Anyone? Anyone? Uh, no, these are these are uh, those are kind of you know uh, I, I guess what I would say those are categories of theology right or schools of theology, but a system of theology is how do you interpret uh, the Word of God as a whole? How do you interpret the Bible? Uh, and so sis- uh, dispensationalism would be one. Another very popular uh, school of theology, I guess I could say, would be uh, New Covenant theology. That's another camp. It's not just that the Bible says there's New Covenant. There's actually a school of thought known as New Covenant Theology, right? And that people that would fall into that category would be like John Piper, D.A. Carson, um, uh, Douglas Moo, uh, people like that, Fred Zaspel. You know, a lot of people from the Gospel Coalition would fall into that category. Uh, so you have different camps. But this is what's really interesting, is I did some research on this. Covenant Theology is not new. Now, when we say it's not new, what I'm saying is that it goes back hundreds of years to the Reformation, right? Uh, again, right after Calvin and Luther reformed away from the Catholic Church, immediately after that, you start having access to the Word of God in a way that we've never had before. So guess what was elevated during the Reformation? Our understanding of justification was greatly enhanced because of the Reformation, right? I mean, the Reformation is about justification by faith. I mean, that was one of the central uh, controversies of the Reformation. But guess what else gets enhanced? This idea of covenant theology, this understanding of how God works through the economies of the Bible covenantally. And as a matter of fact, there's a scholar by the name of Andrew Woolsey um, who writes for a theological journal. It's called the Haddington Journal. Um, and he has done extensive research into the fathers, the church fathers, which now we're going all the way back to the 300s and the 400s, So we're talking about 4th century, 5th century fathers like Arrhenius and many others who, listen to this now, who identify that God was in a covenant with Adam. Why is that important? Why is that important? That God was in a covenant with Adam. Anybody, any thoughts as to why that's crucial? It just establishes that covenant theology is based on the entirety of Scripture. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yes, and also also because the word covenant is not found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? So um, let's see here. No, not pink. Purple's kind of pink. I guess I'll use this. But, you know, there's, there's two words in the Bible uh, to describe covenants. Uh, one is Hebrew right? And the other one is Greek. So like for the New Testament, right? You have berit, right? This uh, Hebrew word berit is where we get our word covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, and then berit has many synonyms like oath, right? Those kinds of, of uh, when God swears, uh, that language is conceived of as covenantal language. And then the New Testament, or if you're reading the Old Testament in Greek, which what's the Old Testament in Greek? The Septuagint, right? A lot of times you'll see the books, they'll, summer, they'll abbreviate the Septuagint with that symbol, the LXX, right? That stands for the Septuagint. That is the Old Testament translation into, into Greek. Um, Eden wants to preach again, huh? Every time. Every time. I know. She won't. Not, not a peep. Not a peep. As soon as I start preaching, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Man. <laughs> she hasn't read 1 Corinthians 14, apparently. So anyway, um, I'll creep up on some of you guys later. But diatheke is the other word for covenant. Neither of those is found in Genesis 1 through 3. As a matter of fact, it's not found, I think, until what? Genesis chapter 8, the first time you, f- you hear the word covenant in the Bible. And so a lot of charges against covenant theology is, hey, you guys are positing a covenant where the word covenant is not even found. And yet, according to Dr. Woolsey, going all the way back to the church fathers, Arrhenius and others, they believe that God was in a covenant relationship with Adam. So already early on, the church is seeing that, that there is some sort of, of, um, of, of Adamic administration, some sort of covenantal arrangement uh, from, from the very beginning. And so that, of course, the relationship between God and Adam is what theologians call the covenant of works, and we'll get to all of that. So needless to say, I think I just wanted to point out quickly that covenant theology is not new. The church fathers uh, have plenty of evidence of that. And by the way, when you're actually looking at the church fathers, or what people call the study of patristics, right? Uh, Patristics just refers to the fathers, right? Pater. So when you're looking at the church fathers, their theology is not formulated. Um... If you go to the church fathers, you can find all kinds of crazy stuff. And a lot of times they're still developing like their theology. So, for example, eschatology. What eschatology were the church fathers? Anybody know? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Any and everything. So you have evidence in the church fathers of premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. They believe in, they, they, they have, you know, different fathers that believe in different things. And, and, and there's not one monolithic understanding of eschatology on that point. You see what I'm saying? So we don't get our covenant theology from the church fathers, but the church fathers show us that from the inception of the church, the church has already been thinking in terms of what we would come to later uh, describe as a covenant of works with Adam. See, the covenant with Adam is absolutely foundational, and hopefully we'll see that as we go on. Here's the other thing, and you're probably already thinking this in your notes. Covenant theology is not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. Um, And I would say, rightly so. Because when we're talking about a system that helps us to interpret not the book of Romans, not, you know, one book of the Bible— we're talking about a theological system that helps us, like a hermeneutical grid that helps us understand the entire uh, uh, revelation of God. I mean, we can't expect it to be uh, simple in every point. And so I just say that in one sense to encourage you. So if you're lost during this study, it's okay. Uh, I've been lost too. <laughs> and on some things, I'm still lost. Because there's fine points of covenant theology that covenant theologians sit and debate Right. And they're both they're all real smart, just like eschatology. I mean, you have some of the smartest people in the whole world. You got John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Piper. They all believe something totally different from each other (laughs) on eschatology. Right. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, I mean, we can debate that later. But (laughs) needless to say, eschatology is not easy. It's very complicated. It's very hard. So here's a question for you. Because it's hard, should we give up? You've got to answer that one the right way, right? You can't give up. So we cannot give up. But what we're going to do is we're going to try to hit some of the major things. Again, I'm going to try to you know, dive into some very sort of um, classic and accepted 
sort of categories of covenant theology. I'm not going to try to achieve anything novel here. I'm just going to try to give a standard historical Baptistic covenant theology to help us understand where we're coming from. And the other thing is that covenant theology is not unified. On top of the fact that there is Baptists and there are Presbyterians, as I've already pointed out, there are also um, they're also within each camp, within Presbyterianism, for example, within Presbyterianism. I have one book uh, that is written about John Murray and Meredith Klein. Both of these guys are monster scholars, and they disagree on really important stuff. Somebody wrote an entire Ph.D. dissertation on their disagreements, so, and they're both Presbyterian. You see what I'm saying? And so same thing with Reformed Baptist guys. Um, these two gentlemen here... Greg Nichols and Pascal Denault, there are points at which these Reformed Baptists do not agree. Okay? And so within every camp of theology, there's going to be some sort of variance. And this happens across the board theologically. Uh, this happens in all schools of theology. Uh, this happens in dispensationalism. Uh, there are classic dispensationalists, and there are now what is called what? There's progressive dispensationalists, dispensationalists who have said, we see things that in the scriptures that the original dispensationalists got wrong. We think we can improve on our tradition. And so guess what? Then they write a book called Progressive Dispensationalism, and they kind of push the ball. And so then the old school guys are mad because they're like, you know, we don't believe that. You know what I mean? These new novel guys, you know. Uh, they're wrong about the direction they're going, you know. I mean, you got John MacArthur saying, I'm a leaky dispensationalist. What does that mean? Write a book, Leaky Dispensationalists? I mean, what? <laughs> but it just shows you that, that there is a spectrum here uh, of theology. Here's another thing, guys. Covenant theology is not optional, right? Every single one of you is a covenant theologian. The only question is, is what kind of covenant theologian are you? <laughs> you know, aside from you're a good theologian or a bad theologian, I mean, you will have some conclusions about the covenants, you will have some sort of understanding of how does the Old Covenant relate to the New Covenant, right? What parts of the Old Covenant carry over into the New Covenant? This is all covenant theology issues. And so everyone is a covenant theologian of some kind, right? It's, it's not optional. We are in the New Covenant. I, I think we sometimes forget that, right? We wake up in the morning, and do you think in your mind, I'm in the New Covenant, <laughs> right? I, I think it's not to us... We don't think of it very practically, but it is very practical. And that's my next point. Covenant theology is not theoretical. I hope to really uh, emphasize this as we go along. So if you're taking notes here, this, I think this is a really important issue. It's not, op- it's not theoretical, meaning it's very practical. Uh, it does have practical bearing on our life. For example... Covenant theology is going to help us to interpret the Bible better. Okay, that's still kind of in the realm of, you know, um, in the realm of abstraction, right, or just theology. But it does help us understand the Bible better. It helps us to understand the Bible as a whole, these kinds of things. It also, listen to this now, guys. It also, covenant theology helps us to understand biblical anthropology. That's another, what is anthropology? Okay, so... When we understand Adam being in a covenant with God, in a covenant of works, and what the covenant of works is saying, that's going to have a major bearing upon um, uh, the way that we view man. 
See, and some of you may even see this on my open-air preaching videos. Well, I'll actually tell people while I'm preaching open-air, I'll tell them that you are a covenant creature, right? You've bro- you're you're, a, you're a, a covenant breaker. And that's what's wrong with you is that because you are under Adam, and Adam is a covenant head, a covenant representative, everybody within Adam or represented by Adam belongs to that covenant administration. You see, all of us, my friends, we have all been born covenant breakers from the womb. God sees us as Adam's fallen race. And that doesn't just have to do with the fact that we've all broken the Ten Commandments. That has to do with the fact that in Adam, God sees us as those that have broken the covenant that he initially made with the, the original man. You see what I'm saying? So it definitely informs our anthropology. The other thing is, let me see here. Any questions so far? Anything at all? Feel free to interrupt or ask anything that you want. Um, you know, one thing that I wrote here is that covenant theology is also important because, for, like for example, the covenant of grace as it is found in principle in the Abrahamic covenant, reminds us that we are not second-class citizens because we are Gentiles. That's a very important point, right? Because you and I are not Gentiles, how does God view us? Well, if you understand the Abrahamic covenant, see, turn there with me real quick. Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter 3, right? Because it talks about the Abrahamic covenant. And I know some of you are saying, man, finally we get to the Bible. But we'll be in the Bible a lot. But if you look at this, right, what is he saying here? I mean, so much. Let's string some of these passages together. Beginning in verse, um, sure, verse 6, that's great. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, the sons of Abraham goes back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, right? Where God says, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 15 and 17, where God tells Abraham, right, that he will multiply and bless his descendants. And we can read the Old Testament and go, huh, I wish I was a descendant of Abraham, but I'm not Jewish. But what is this telling us? What this is telling us is that by faith, because, because of the nature of the Abrahamic covenant, by faith, we are children of Abraham. We're not second-class citizens, right? We're not just God's plan B for redemption. And God's sitting there going, oh, you know, I better, better do something for the Gentiles. No, what we learn from the Abrahamic covenant is that from the beginning, God's purpose was to save a people from all tribes, nations, and people groups of the world in, because of the Abrahamic covenant and to be children of God. Now turn over to, um, turn over to the next or to the end of this chapter, verse twenty, twenty-eight. You ever quoted this verse, Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-eight? You ever cited this verse? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. You ever quote that verse? You ever quote the next verse? And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants. Wow. So what was going on in the Abrahamic covenant is that there was a messianic component. You see that? That in a sense transcended the physical posterity 
of Abraham, the physical genealogy of Abraham, something even deeper and greater than physical descent was that there was a messianic component to the Abrahamic covenant. And we are Abraham's children and we are heirs of the promise. Amazing. So that just reminds us that we're not second class citizens. We'll get more and more uh, into that. How about this, guys? Covenant theology informs our worship. It impacts our worship, right? Because when we understand the purpose of God and what God has done, we understand that, and we'll talk a little bit more about this here in a second, but what, what is a covenant for? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What is a covenant for? What's it for? Agreement. An agreement? That's true. An agreement for, for who? Yeah. A commitment for what? Uh, God's relational commitment to his people. And I, I want to I I uh, hijack your word relational or relationship, right? Because that's what covenant theology is all about, you guys. Covenant theology is all about God wanting a relationship with his people and doing what he has to do to secure that relationship. Now think about that very practically. That, uh, that everything that you're seeing in the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the New Covenant, all of that is for the purpose of God to secure fellowship with his people. That should just blow our minds, right? The whole reason why he's doing everything that he's doing is so that he can have a peculiar people for himself. And you know this verse, but I'm going to have you turn there anyway. Revelation chapter 21. You know this verse because I emphasize this time and again. Revelation chapter 21, this, this just a practical how covenant theology informs our worship because it emphasizes the relational aspect of God's dealings with man, that God wants fellowship with his people. In a sense, that's the goal. You want to be a really good covenant theologian? Just know Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 4, and understand that the whole purpose of covenant theology is so that we can have fellowship with God. It's that simple. How, how many of you guys just understood what I said? No, serious. Come on. Okay, good. Some of you. <laughs> That's what makes you a good theologian, is that you understand what's it for. It's like G.K. Beale. He says, uh, G.K. Beale is a professor, scholar, Westminster. He says his wife always, after, you know, he, you know he, he's always preaching to his wife, you know, kind of like me. I'm always telling, Russian, telling Trish my ideas. She's kind of like my theological punching bag. I bounce everything off of her, you know. And she always says to him, so what? <laughs> you know, after this elaborate, you know, scholarly thing that he's talking about, she, her simple question is, so what? In other words, what's the point, right? And so when, we're, so when we're talking about what is the so what of covenant theology, it's relationship. It's God wants fellowship. Where are we at? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. You want to read that, Robert? Um, where? 1 through 4. Be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. 
Yeah, the first things have passed away, but I mean, just the emphasis there in verse 3, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. What does that tell us, by the way, about the Old Testament tabernacle? Of? Yeah, it was a shadow of what? Of this, that's right. And what is this? What is the fulfillment telling us? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when God tells the children of Israel in the book of Exodus to build the, build the tabernacle, what is he saying to them, right? He's saying, build a tabernacle so that I can come dwell with you, right? Uh, see, we don't understand the power of this because we're, you know, modern, you know, 21st century people. We are not nomadic travelers, right? We are not, we're not a nomadic civilization, but if you were, if you were a nomadic civilization like the children of Israel way back then, then you understand the concept of tent dwelling, right? That you dwell in tents together. And to have somebody come into your tent is like the ultimate symbol of fellowship. And what does God tell the children of Israel to build? A tent, right? So that he would meet with them. He even calls it the tent of meeting. It's the tent of fellowship. And that structure the tent of fellowship that 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 structure like juan said it's a picture it's a it's a type it's a shadow foreshadowing the heavenly tent the heavenly dwelling of god with his people and and this is what i'm saying that to me it just it makes me want to worship you know um any other practical implications of covenant theology that you can think of that i missed anyone Anyone? No? Yes, Robert? Well, in the book Knowing Christ that we're reading, I think it, it points out some really heavy things that are practical when it comes mm-hmm. to covenant theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on what you just said, relational mm-hmm. aspect of worshiping the Lord, because ultimately, what, like he made the, when he made the, the quote in the book, it's to, to the effect of everything is for him. It wasn't it wasn't the fact that things were are for us, but everything is made for him, for Christ. Mm. Um, and as we get to, when we go and see him, it is because the Father answers the prayer of Jesus Christ and finally delivers us to the king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's my next point you see on your notes there. Right. God, a covenant theology is Christ-centered. You see that? You know what's so remarkable to me is I looked high and low for a book that is written on covenant theology from a Christocentric perspective. And you know how many I found? Zero. There is not a single, okay, maybe that's an overreaching indictment, but there is not, like, for example, there's not a book that you're going to find that says Christ-centered covenant theology. It's not out there, right? Maybe Christ of the Covenants is the closest thing, you know what I mean, of old Palmer Robertson. But what I'm saying is that covenant theology is not given to us so that we can just sit and marvel at God's covenant administration. It's not just given us so we can marvel at the concept of a covenant. The covenant is to reveal Christ to us. That's what it's all about. Every covenantal administration is about Christ. And and that's what's remarkable is that it, it, he is truly, as Robertson says, he is the Christ of the covenants. And every covenant we hope to show that 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 he does that until finally at last i mean think about think about how powerful this is right 
Um, from the very beginning, you have covenant after covenant after covenant after covenant. And, this, and then Christ comes, and what does he say? Matthew 26, verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, right? For the first time in redemptive history, the Messiah says this covenant is in my blood, no longer in the blood of bulls or goats, right? No, lum, no longer just symbolized, like let's say with the Abrahamic covenant, the, the parting of the animals that was like a, a picture of foreshadow. No longer do you have a typological king that reigns on a throne. Now the covenant is literally in his blood. He is the, he is the, the, the seal of the covenant, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think having a Christ-centered covenant theology keeps us grounded, right? That however lofty our ideas of covenant theology are becoming as we're fleshing it out and we're getting into the, the details of it, and the, they're all glorious, but, but if we don't terminate on Christ, right, as much as we may elaborate on the, the, the fine, you know, dimensions of this covenant or that covenant, right? If we don't bring it home to Christ, then we miss the whole purpose for which the covenant was given. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. So how would you deal with uh, maybe like a dispensationalist saying, uh, well, you just spiritualizing that. We're going to get to that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody that's been, I've been talking to about this, the first thing that have been telling me is, are you going to deal with dispensationalism? Yeah, we will, but we'll deal with everything. But I understand dispensationalism is, you know, dispensationalism is a school of thought that rejects the three uh, covenants that covenant theology starts with. What are those three covenants? What's the first one? Covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. So dispensationalists would say those are extra biblical covenants. They are not explicitly taught in the Bible. Therefore, we re- they reject them outright. See what I'm saying? And so we would say, okay, you know, and I would, I don't know, I would even say, you know, give me a hardcore dispensationalist. Let me talk some sense into him. <laughs> I'm, just joking. I'm joking. I'm saying let me talk to him for a little bit, and let's not see, let's see how much we can actually come to an agreement, at least on the concepts that are connected there. You see what I'm saying? Like, we may not call it the same thing, but I, I, I'm very curious to sit with John MacArthur and say, you know, are you really telling me that you don't believe in some sort of eternal agreement between the Father and the Son for the purpose of redemption? I think he would say, no, 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 I do, I do. I, I, I definitely do. I think you see that reflected here and there and everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So, okay, well, look, I, I call it a covenant. You don't, and I have reasons for that, and I'm going to give you guys reasons for that, but I have reasons why I would, I would go so far as to say this is a covenant, an uh, inter-Trinitarian covenant, right? So, but, but just so that you know, those three uh, foundational covenants are rejected by dispensationalism. And so the question that Kadab is asking is much more of a hermeneutics question, right? And, and this is where the banter back and forth, you know, dispensationalists say, well, covenant theologians are just, they interpret everything, you know, they spiritualize the text or they allegorize the text. They don't take the text literal. So, you know, we can go right back and say, well, neither do you, you know, because of this and that, you know what I mean? So we can fight, but I'm going to try not to fight today, okay? But feel free to ask questions because that's important. Like, 
I, I know for every one of us, we want to be able to say, we take the Bible literal. <laughs> like, what are you talking about, right? Of course we do. You know, but there's, there's more to it than that. Yes, sir. Let's move on to the next thing because we're going to run out of time. But the next one here is um, just in terms of the covenantal character of Scripture in your notes. I asked a simple question. What is a covenant? What is a covenant, right? I think we have to have some kind of working definition for what a covenant is and what a covenant is not. Um, A lot of definitions have been given for what a covenant is. Let me take a stab at it. I would say something like this. A covenant is a formal relationship that is entered to through oaths, rituals, and commitments. A covenant is a formal relationship that is entered into through oaths, rituals, and commitments. Um, Also, maybe even a shorter one. You ready to write this one down? This was was, uh, Meredith Klein gave this definition of a covenant. A covenant is an oath-bound commitment. A covenant is an oath-bound commitment. Um, That's important because what you see in... Oh, turn there with me. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Is what what we're going to argue for, for example, when we're talking about the covenant with Adam. Some people call it the creation covenant. Some people call it the Adamic administration. And then more refined, you know, theology identifies it as a covenant of works because they're trying to establish what's the nature of the covenant like what's the kind of covenant that it is you know what i mean is the new covenant a covenant of works no it's not a covenant of works (laughs) no jesus just says (laughs) jesus just says this is this is the new covenant in my blood that was shed for you. This is my body. This is my blood broken for you, right? This is the new covenant. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 28, Jesus just says, as the Father has granted me a covenant, I grant you a covenant. Matter of fact, in your translations, though, it will say, as the Father has granted me, excuse me, as the Father has, and I even said that wrong, so I'm glad the tape's still recording so I can correct it. It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 28, it says, As the Father has granted me a kingdom, so I grant you a kingdom. Here's what's interesting. When Jesus says grant, this is the word he uses. So he says, the Father has covenanted me a kingdom, and I covenant you a kingdom. And so, and so, and so Jesus is sovereignly, graciously imposing this covenant on his church. They don't have to earn it. Uh, they don't have to keep the law in order to be in it. It is entered by faith, or we could say by grace, through faith. You see what I'm saying? 
We don't earn any of it. But when Jesus says that, in a sense, he is making an oath and he is giving a commitment to his people and he seals it with his blood, right? And we know the idea of that already, right? Genesis chapter 15, you have the, I would say, one of the ultimate examples of this. Genesis chapter 15, as God is ratifying the covenant with Abraham, how does he do it? Remember my definition? A covenant is a formal relationship that is entered into through oaths, rituals, and what ritual did God establish with Abraham? What's that? He, yeah. It says that he put Adam or Abraham into a deep sleep, right? He, he had a, like a sleep fell over him. And then God split these animals, part of this anim- these animals, created a death passage. And then he symbolically uses two symbols. He uses a blazing furnace and a, and a burning torch, right? And he, these two symbols go passing through the animals. That's a ritual, folks. And what is God saying with that ritual? That ritual is what's known as a maledictory ritual. In other words, malediction, meaning something bad will happen to you, (laughs) right? And what God is saying is, let me be cut asunder if the commitment is not kept, uh, this covenant arrangement, this this sort of commitment to, I will bless you, I will multiply you, I'll make you a great nation, all the peoples of the earth, I'll, in your seed, all the nations will be earth, will, will be blessed. And if that does not happen, what God was saying was, I will be like those animals and be split asunder. Wow. So there is a very serious commitment that is being made there. Uh, these are just kind of some of the definitions of what a covenant is. Any questions? What is a covenant? I mean, I've never understood it that way, so it almost feels like brand new scripture to me. So Uh can we go there? Uh, Genesis chapter 15, yeah. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Genesis 15. I know, and Gail, the thing is, is like for me, I'm like, I'm trying to save it because we're going to get, so, no, no, and I want to go there now, but all I'm saying is that I'm, (laughs) yeah yeah that's right (laughs) just in parts right right now we're not in that dispensation gail (laughs) that's good man yeah so you know right after you know the lord promises all of these things to abraham uh, he says, you know, uh, do not fear Abraham, I am your shield, I am your great reward. Abraham, verse 1, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, right? Um, and the heir of my house is Eliezer the Damascus. And then Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then the Lord, uh, then, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. Isn't that amazing? So God appears to Abraham in the tent. He comes and dwells with him in the tent. And then to illustrate his covenant commitment to him, he calls him out of the tent and says, Look up. Wow. I mean, try to put yourself in the shoes there, guys. Look up to the stars and count the stars and see if you're able to count them. Right? He says... Um, 
And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's obviously where we get the doctrine of justification by faith alone, is that verse right there, verse 6. And he says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth, the Chaldees. That's a, so- notice the sovereign administration. That's why some, some would define a covenant as a sovereign, uh, a covenant is a, a relationship that is sovereignly administered. Because look at that. I brought you out of Ur. <laughs> and what was he doing in Ur before God brought him? He was a pagan moon worshiper, right? He was worshiping the stars that God was pointing him to. <laughs> and said, no, those aren't gods, Abraham. Those stars are my creation. I made those and that. Those are covenant stars. Those stars are going to remind you of my commitment to you to bless you, right? And he says, and to give you this land to take possession of the land, right? And he said, oh, Lord, how may I possess May I possess it? So he said to him, bring me three-year-old heifer. So how do I know? In other words, he's asking for the commitment. How may I know that I will possess it? What's the Lord's answer? I will make a covenant with you. I will make a commitment to you. I'm going to show you how deadly serious this promise is. Bring me three, a three-year-old heifer, right? And a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these out, and he cut them in two, and each laid each on the opposite side. Uh, but he says, but he did not cut the birds. And, and he says, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them. We're actually going to get into the imagery of those birds, by the way. It's really fascinating. I can't do it today because I'm out of time. But and then he says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and he behold, terror, great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abraham, no, for certain. What, is, what was his question? How will I know that I will possess the land? Now the Lord is saying, you will know, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. What's he talking about? Slavery, Slavery in Egypt. But I will also judge the nation with whom they serve, and afterwards they come out and, uh, with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here to the land of promise, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Wow, that's so deep. It came about, and the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates, the Canaanite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Gershite, and the Jebusite. Don't miss those names, by the way. Those, those names are awesome. Um, so there you go. God ratifies that commitment that he made to him. He ratifies that with a ritual of blood. And he does that. And by doing that, he promises a maledictory oath. There is actually a text. I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. There's a text. You might find it. I think it's in, I think it's in Kings or something like that. Maybe Jared would know. Just te- teasing Jared that he's always in Kings or Chronicles or <laughs> it's great. Praise the Lord. But there's somewhere where a king is making a covenant with another king and he's saying something like, you know, let's split these animals and let let me be like those animals if I don't keep my commitment type of thing. So it's actually exemplified on a human level what God did. Right. That that covenant formula was a regular ancient Near Eastern practice. Isn't that amazing? Right? 
is, is, it's, it's what they practice. Now, I'm running out of time very quickly. Oh, man, I'm so out of time. What does the note say? What did I leave out? What is a covenant? What is covenant theology? And then char- characteristics of a covenant. We'll have to leave it at that. We're, we're going to have to pick up there next time. So bring these notes again if you want to. And I'll also probably have additional notes. Or maybe we'll just finish this up. We're not in any rush. Um, but we have so much to cover. So any, any final questions for me? Anything at all on this? Yes, sir? Anything? I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. It's so hard. Honestly, it's a mixture. I can't give you one. I would say you need to, you need to read this. If you have not read this, like the Christ of the Covenant, if you have not read this, right? Brian, you started reading this, right? And did you, did you finish it? This book is foundational. Again, even though we disagree with some of the points, I think it's written in such a way that any, anyone can benefit from it. But this will definitely lay covenantal foundation for you and just kind of give you, um, uh, give you like a working knowledge of what are covenant theologians saying. So O. Palmer Robertson, this is a classic. Uh, Lig Duncan, for example, this was his professor in seminary, and he says, you know, everything he knows about covenant theology, he learned from him. Um, so anyway, we will, Lord willing, continue. I want to be a good boy and end early. So let's go to worship.